Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. You can find episode show notes, past episode archives, and listener discussions at our website, thenexttrack.com. And in between episodes, follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. We recently talked about what would happen if Apple breaks up iTunes, and there's been a lot of rumbling about this. And some more information came out about a week ago. Yeah, Steve Troughton-Smith, who is a guy who's been following the developments at Apple, especially as regards Marzipan and uh, UIKit, that's the uh, the framework that will enable iPad apps to become macOS apps. He's been doing a lot of looking into this, and apparently he's got some kind of connection at Apple. But uh, he last week confirmed that there is going to be a music app, a videos app, in a podcast app. There's already a books app, and I presume that the books app will handle audiobooks, right? Yeah, I think that Apple's already mentioned that, but the the TV app is something that they announced a while ago as well. Yeah. So we're going to see a breakup of iTunes. Kirk and I believe that the iTunes app itself will still be around for a while, but these other apps are going to come out, and we presumed that they would be Marzipan. Well, it turns out at least the music and the videos app will not be Marzipan. They will be actual macOS apps. They've just been rejiggered, uh, either based on the current iTunes code or rewritten from the ground up. We don't know for sure. And, of course, one of the things I'm worried about, I'm concerned about, is whether or not these apps are going to be scriptable. And so I asked Steve Troughton-Smith on Twitter, what about Apple script support for these apps? And he reported that there is what's called a scripting definition file inside these apps. Again, I don't know where he's getting his information. I assume it's legitimate. Knowing the way Apple works, I'm guessing that they have authorized him to talk about this. Because usually, if you say anything about beta software, and of course, they're a bit more flexible now. They have public betas of operating systems. But if you say anything about beta software that's not public, you can lose your developer account. And this guy is high profile enough that he wouldn't want to lose his developer account. So I'm pretty sure Apple has authorized him. Say, okay, you can talk about this. This is how Apple leaks stuff. So anyone leaks stuff. That's what it seems like what it is. How about a very quick explainer for those who don't know what AppleScript is and does what AppleScript is and does. AppleScript is a, a fairly simple programming language that harnesses the Apple events that occur on a computer. Okay, that's too high level, Doug. What does AppleScript do for a user using iTunes? What can they do with it? AppleScript automates the things that you do with iTunes. So, for instance, if you do some uh, repetitive editing, uh, chances are an AppleScript can do all that for you. And if, if you've been to my website, you're familiar with lots of AppleScripts that I have that, that work on track tags, that help create playlists, that help you sort tracks, do all kinds of things like that. Link in the show notes. I'll just give an example of the most recent script by Doug that I used. It was remove end characters from front to back. I'll talk about my next track pick at the end of the show. And when I was ripping these two CDs, there was superfluous information in the name tags, the, where the names of the songs are. And it was all the same length because it's basically dates of live performances with brackets around them. So you select the tags, you open the script, it gives you a simulation. You You click a thing with up arrows and down arrows to get the number of characters, you see what it's going to look like, you click the button, and it just wipes them all out. Instead of going to each track in iTunes, deleting it manually. Right. That's the perfect sort of repetitive stress injury you're avoiding by using that script. Exactly. So anyway, my concern was that 
Apple Script won't be a part of this new music app. And it turns out that it might. Now, just because it has a scripting definition doesn't mean that it has the robust Apple Script support that iTunes currently has. When iTunes first came out, there was no Apple Script support, or at least publicly available. Eventually, people discovered that there's there was some simple Apple Script in there. You could tell it to play, stop, pause, fast forward, and rewind. And that's all you could do. You couldn't access any tracks. You couldn't access playlists. You couldn't really do much else with it other than turn it on and off. Eventually, they added back a lot of the stuff that SoundJam had. That's what I'm thinking they'll do this time. I think they'll give it some basic Apple Script, perhaps uh, adding more stuff as they go along. We just don't know at what level of Apple Script, how much Apple Script is going to be available. So apparently they're deprecating Automator, which is an app on the Mac that lets you sort of do things like Apple Script, but without actually knowing a programming language. You select items in a library, you drag them to a window, there's a, a sequence of operations. But if they're getting rid of this, will there be something to replace it? And can that ever replace Apple Script? I think it would be it would be very difficult, first of all, to get rid of Apple Script because a lot of people depend on it for workflows. As I said, when I, when you first asked me to say what Apple Script is, it wrangles Apple events. Well, Apple events aren't going anywhere. They're there because that's how the operating system works with Apple events. So it doesn't really make much sense to get rid of Apple Script to, to control these things. Automator, we've heard it's going to be deprecated. I would think that they just replace it with something called shortcuts because shortcuts on iOS kind of works the same way. You take individual actions, you plug them together, and then you create a new workflow. That's pretty much the way Automator works. Um, so perhaps that's what we're going to see. And that would, of course, also help with, uh, with this unification, which really looks to be inevitable between iOS and macOS. So, you know, if we can start at that level of, of programming with a, something that's common to both, it, it might actually make the, uh, the, uh, the progress of, of that change faster and better. But what about a world without AppleScript? I don't think most people would care too much. I know you would and I would. You might notice, though, because you'd be surprised how many apps use AppleScript to communicate with iTunes or with anything. So I don't think AppleScript is going anywhere, even though people don't really run into it in their day-to-day -day usage of the Mac. I know that back in the day, AppleScript was very widely used for desktop publishing, right? Things like Quark Express and PageMaker depended on that a great deal. That's what I mean. People have been using um, these kinds of workflows ever since then. I, I, I recently saw someone tweeting about software that they've been using for 15 years that they can no longer use on macOS because it's 64-bit, but they've been using these uh, these older apps that are 32-bit and still using these older workflows. And if they pull Apple Script, this whole workflow just goes out the window. Yeah, you said at some point, I'm not sure which adjective you used to talk about the language. It was something like simple. It's far from simple. For As programming languages go, it might be simple. But for someone like me, it's not simple at all. Well, if you compare, uh, people often say Apple Script is a simple programming language to the extent that when you look at it, you can kind of figure out what's happening a lot. If you look at Swift, you just there's just no way to tell what's going on unless you understand the language. But with Apple Script, when you see something that says "Tell iTunes to play," that's pretty much a command right there. That's true. Um, yeah. It can get more convoluted and it can get more um, esoteric and 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 Byzantine. But uh, for the most part, Apple Script is a fairly simple language. A lot of people don't like it because it's. It's not like JavaScript where there is, if you know JavaScript, where there's one action does one thing. But in AppleScript, depending on the, on the 
application you're scripting, it can be different all around. So Mail's AppleScript dictionary is not like iTunes' AppleScript dictionary, which is not like Safari's, which is not like Pages. There are some things that are in common, but because they have specific uh, uh, components, they all have specific Apple script. Okay, at the risk of alienating a lot of listeners, who I'm sure are going to stick with us because they want to get to our next track picks, what if they replaced Apple script with JavaScript, which you just mentioned? JavaScript is, is probably the most widely used programming language in the world because it's used on the web. You can write JavaScripts where, pretty much wherever you can write Apple script now. A couple of years ago, they, they um, made a script editor. They made it so that you could write JavaScript with it. I don't know anybody who writes these kinds of scripts, but you can write a JavaScript for iTunes. I've never seen any of it, though. I don't know anybody who uses it. Okay, well, this is a bit obscure. So we, we've already talked about the potential for iTunes being separated. I'll link in the show notes to the recent episode we did. I think the fact that this is not a marzipan app, and here we're getting into minutia, marzipan apps are very limited in what they can display and how you can interface with them. So the fact that it's not a marzipan app means that you can have multiple windows that you'll be able to edit metadata, for example. And as we discussed in the previous episode about breaking up iTunes, if it was a marzipan app, you might not be able to do that. Or the only way to do that might have been right-clicking on each item you want to change or something complicated. I, I saw something on Twitter, someone saying about iTunes being broken up and someone saying, oh, most people don't need to rip CDs and burn CDs anymore. And it just, it makes me, it's, just, it's a head desk moment. The fact that it can rip and burn CDs does not affect your use of iTunes. There is not some little gremlin inside that's always jumping up saying, hey, do you want to rip a CD every time you want to do something? This is just code that's there. It doesn't get in the way. It's never called if you don't use it. And, and I find this attitude really surprising. Yes, it, there's another feature in a menu that might disturb you if you actually click in that menu. But if all you do is play music with iTunes, you're not going to even look at these menus. Right. I think they, they forget that there are lots of diehard... Music collectors who like their files, and I'm one of them. I, I that's my preferred uh, media. I like audio files. Uh, I work with them. I, I create them. We're recording some right now. I'm going to edit this audio file later. We're going to upload it to to be able to distribute the podcast. Without audio files, we would be useless. And not only that, but streaming uses files too. So let's not forget that. It's yes. not, you're not getting direct audio. You're getting files downloaded to your devices to play them. Oh, I always thought that there was actually, every time you called up a song, the, they would wake up the band and the band would play the song live for or, you. Or there was a DJ there playing it for you, right? Is that yes. what it is? Yeah, yeah. yeah gonna, playing an actual He's going to pull record. the record out of the shell and yes. he's going to spin it for you. <laughs> and that a playlist was just like when you stacked up records on one of those things in a, on an old turntable. The old changer. I, yeah. I, saw, I saw someone actually on a Facebook group about the Grateful Dead who was talking about the Woodstock album. And we mentioned this recently. It was sides one and four on one record and sides two and three. And the person had bought the Woodstock album and said, there must be something wrong because there's sides one and four on the same <laughs> record. And a bunch of older people piped in to say, well, this is actually how it used to work. It used to work that way. We liked it that way. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I can't say I actually used that feature very often, but it didn't bother me that it existed. It just made it a little more complicated when you were switching from one side to another. I remember probably playing Woodstock all the way through like that, maybe once or twice ever, but most of the time I just picked a, a, a side or two that I was going to play. Um, I can't think of why you would be interested in doing it that way unless you're interested in the chronology of it. You know the Well, because, yeah, but logically, you take out a record, you play one side, you flip it, you play the other side. Whereas here, you start with um, Richie Havens and you end up with 
um, Jimi Hendrix on the flip side, and you've missed all the stuff in the middle. Yeah, but other than something like that, where you'd want to hear it from beginning to end, I, I, I don't think it would make much difference. Although, maybe there are, are there classical recordings, long-form classical recordings that would benefit from, you know, playing things in order? I have a feeling I had some, like Bach's Mass in B minor was probably on three LPs, maybe two, and I'm pretty sure I remember some of them that did that. I actually have a bunch of classical vinyl upstairs in a box that I've been trudging around since I left New York in 1984. I should go have a look at that. Yeah, go have a look at those LPs. We need to do a show about vinyl one day. Well, have you, uh, did you ever record any of those LPs to file, to MP3? No, I don't have a turntable. Oh, well, no wonder you can only look at them. I, I don't have a Victrola. Well, they still make them, Grandpa, so... Yeah. All right, should we move to the next tracks? Absolutely. All right, I got a next track. I haven't picked a Grateful Dead record as my next track in at least a couple of weeks, so it's time to pick a new Grateful Dead record. It is Warfield 1980. The Grateful Dead, unlike most bands, didn't do discrete tours. They just kept playing. You know, Dylan, we talk about the never-ending tour. Well, the Grateful Dead was always like that. We do talk about Europe 72 because that was overseas and that was like a tour. But other than that, they just kept playing. Except in 1980, when they did, in September and October, a, a series of concerts that had three sets, one acoustic set and two electric sets. They did 15 shows at the Warfield in San Francisco, two at the Sanger Theater in New Orleans, and eight shows at Radio City Music Hall in New York. Now, I attended two of the Radio City Music Hall shows, October 29 and October 31. October 31 is relatively well-known because they had this whole sort of thing with comedy skits with um, Franken and Davis, Al Franken and Tom Davis from Saturday Night Live, Al Franken, former U.S. senator. And this was broadcast via closed-circuit TV to a number of cities and states on the east coast of the United States. It was filmed, it was released as a DVD called Dead Ahead in 1981. In 2005, there was an expanded version and they released a couple of recordings from this. One of them was Reckoning, which was an album of acoustic tracks, and the other was Dead Set, which was an album of electric tracks. Reckoning has always been one of the favorite recordings of Grateful Deadheads because the Dead never played a lot of acoustic shows. They did some in 1970, around the time that they were coming out with Working Man's Dead and American Beauty, and then they did this in 1980. But other than that, they did not do all acoustic shows. Reckoning had a bunch of songs from different shows at the Warfield and Radio City, and the second bonus disc, when they released it in 2004, had a lot of stuff from the 102380 show at Radio City. This new release is the October 9 and 10 shows from Warfield, the complete acoustic sets, about 50 minutes each. There's not a lot of duplication in the songs across the two albums, except Ripple ends both of them, and the Ripple on Reckoning is considered to be one of the classic Grateful Dead acoustic live tracks. In some ways, listening to two more CDs of the Grateful Dead Acoustic is two more CDs of the Grateful Dead Acoustic. It's not like these are songs that weren't available on Reckoning or the expanded version of Reckoning. But in another way, the Grateful Dead Acoustic were so good. You get a little bit of jamming, but nothing like, you know, the crazy Dark Star jamming. But the tight sound that they had, the way that they were able to go up there, and they were even sitting close together. I'll put a link in the show notes to a YouTube video with the acoustic set from Dead Ahead. You'll see that they're really close together. They're playing like a small group instead of, you know, more spread out on the stage. And the Radio City Music Hall stage is quite large. But there's something about the energy in this acoustic music. It's as if that they're not feeling the same kind of pressure as when they're doing electric music. A lot of this is traditional songs. 
I'm looking at the track list for Reckoning. There's an Elizabeth Cotton song. There's a Bill Browning song, Jesse Fuller, Charlie Monroe, Sugar Boy Crawford, Marty Robbins, El Paso. Uh, you know, the Dead did a lot of covers. But it's like half of this is old-time music, roots music. And we didn't call it that back then. We just called it, you know, Grateful Dead playing someone else's songs. So this was originally released for Record Store Day on vinyl and CD, but there's a general release of the CD. Two CDs from Rhino Records, Grateful Dead, Warfield, 1980. Doug, what have you got? Well, it's funny you mention acoustic Grateful Dead because that kind of leads to what, what my pick is this week. When I was in high school and figuring out how to play the guitar and the mandolin and things like that, whenever you used to go, quote-unquote, jam with musicians you may not have jammed with before a lingua franca was usually a few grateful dead songs so they'd be like hey do you know ripple hey do you know this stuff so i played a lot of acoustic grateful dead um not because i particularly liked the grateful dead but in order to play music with people who i didn't know you kind of had to know these songs it's like do you know johnny be good but you played the mandolin uh, too. i did ha- i was a i was a ringer for a lot of uh jamming sessions because <laughs> i had a mandolin and i knew how to play you know, I could do uh, Ripple, and I could do uh, what's enough Maggie May by Rod Stewart and stuff like that. But anyway, um, when I went to college, I didn't really know much about a lot of that kind of music, Grateful Dead. And another band I didn't know anything about was Little Feet. The only song that I knew by Little Feet was Willin, and that was again a lingua franca song. If you know, do you know Willin? Yeah, I know Willin. So um, when I got to college, a, a lot of the people who I ran into. I went to the University of Rhode Island, which is uh, sort of located in a very, uh, uh, it's out in the woods, essentially, is what I'm saying. And most of the people who went to URI, it seemed to me, wore corduroys and flannel shirts and pocket t-shirts. And they all liked the Grateful Dead, and they all liked Little Feet and bands of that ilk. And I really got to like Little Feet a lot, because everybody was playing it. And when it came time to to finally get a copy of a Little Feet album. I wanted more bang for my buck. So I bought the double album, Waiting for Columbus, which is a live album. It's probably one of the greatest live albums ever recorded, in my opinion. I think a lot of people would agree with me. It's It not only serves as a, as a great document of their performances with Lowell George and, and the original group of, of Little Feet members, it's also sort of a greatest hits album because there's a lot of great songs on it. Uh, Fat Man in the Bathtub, all That You Dream, Oh Atlanta, Dixie Chicken, all of these things. And on top of the fact that it had a lot of great Little Feet songs, they also did some great performances. Some of the songs are elongated for some extra-long piano solos and guitar solos. It's just a really great record, and it was really a, a gateway drug into a lot of other great music. And it wasn't the kind of music that I really liked. I even thought of The Grateful Dead and Little Feet as like folky. Uh, whereas I liked straight-ahead rock stuff. But this is one of the first albums that actually got my head around uh, that kind of music, and uh, I, I really like it a lot. It's Little Feet, Waiting for Columbus. Interesting. So while you were saying that, I naturally went to Wikipedia to read up on Little Feet, and Lowell George was a member of the Mothers of Invention. Yes, that's right. As strange as it sounds, he played with Frank Zappa. He's on uh, Hot Rats, he's on Bongo Fury, maybe a couple of other um uh, compilation albums. He played the song Willin' for Zappa, and apparently there are three stories about what happened. The first is that Zappa fired him, saying that he was too talented to just be a member of the band. The second says that Zappa fired him for playing a guitar, a 15-minute guitar solo with his amplifier off. 
And the third says that Zappa fired him because it contains drug references, weed, whites, and wine. Yeah, those are all good stories. <laughs> um, I, I don't know why Lil George started playing with Frank or why he left. But, uh, you know, the thing is, when you play with Frank, you're not a collaborator. You're in the band. And he can fire people or you can quit the band if you want. But it's not like he was an important fixture in any of the mother's configurations. And interestingly, before they were actually Little Feet, they were uh, uh, Captain Beefheart's band. So there's another Zappa connection. It's interesting. The song Willin came up recently. I was watching the Cameron Crowe TV series Roadies, which I've mentioned here. Um, I was re-watching it recently on Amazon. And there's this character named Phil, who's this old guy who's been around for a long time. And he's part of the road crew. He's one of the leaders. And at one point, someone says, what's your favorite song? And he says, it's got to be Willin. It's got to be that. And at one point, the other roadies are on the bus playing it, even with Machine Gun Kelly playing it on acoustic guitar. Now, apparently, Machine Gun Kelly is a, a much-tattooed white rapper who I had never heard of before he was on this show, but he doesn't seem like someone who would be playing an acoustic guitar. But there you see, it's the lingua franca. Everybody knows Willen. You can go anywhere and say, do you know Willen? Yeah, I know Willen. Good point. I think the only Little Feet record I had back in the day was probably this live record. I'm just looking at the covers on Apple Music and I don't recognize anything else. They do have a sort of recognizable style, kind of like the New Riders of the Purple Sage, that kind of cartoony style. Yeah, those early albums were all done by a guy named Neon Park. Isn't it amazing? I didn't know anything about Little Feet when I first started. And here I am, I have even I have all this trivia that I know. Hey, we got to go. See you next week. This was episode number 149 of The Next Track. Thank you very much for listening. Your comments are welcome. You can start or join a conversation on this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. If you like the show, we'd appreciate it if you gave us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you can't leave a review, recommend us to a few friends. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.